Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Machion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Brad Lewis coming back once again with our podcast, Blood, Sweat, and Smears. This is from Nation Diagnostics, and it's a podcast about classical hematology with an emphasis on thrombosis and inflammation. Today, I have the pleasure of bringing Christina Klein, who's head of the transplant program at Piedmont Hospital, has been a renal transplanter for quite a period of time. And we were going to talk a bit about renal transplants and the role of testing around renal transplants, gene sequencing soluble MAC, other kinds of testing I suspect may come up as we talk about this. But I was interested in sort of what is the role of this kind of testing for atypical HUS and complement activation in patients who are coming in for a transplant evaluation and then for a transplant. So Dr. Klein, I'd love to hear your thoughts about patients coming to you for a transplant. What is the role of genetic testing for those patients when they first come to you? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. When we see people for a kidney transplant evaluation, I've always been somewhat surprised at the number of patients that don't have a biopsy in order to diagnose their renal disease. And we see a fair number of people that clearly by clinical history have diabetic nephropathy, um, but we also have several patients that come to us with a kind of diagnosis of hypertensive kidney disease but no biopsy. And so when we start to see people, especially younger individuals that don't have an impressive history of long-standing hypertension, for example, or they presented with very acute onset renal failure, if they had low platelets on presentation, or for the female patients, if they had kind of a postpartum renal failure, then we start to consider atypical HUS as the original etiology of their kidney disease. And so there are patients that come to us for a transplant evaluation that don't have already a clinical diagnosis of atypical HUS, but we do end up testing them as part of their transplant evaluation with genetic testing. So I'm just curious, what's the frequency of patients presenting to you either with a end-stage renal disease of unclear etiology that's suspicious for AHUS or for AHUS in patients coming in. I assume it's lower now than it used to be as we get better at managing these patients, but how often? Do you have any idea? Yes. So I have seen fewer patients ever since eclosumab has become available for treatment of atypical HUS just because fewer patients are progressing to renal failure to the point that they need a transplant. I would say that for pre-diagnosed atypical HUS, I see patients perhaps one to two a year referred to us for transplant evaluation. And that's a pretty small frequency, probably less Mm -hmm. than a half a percent of all of our evaluations have that diagnosis. In terms of people that have a clinical story potentially concerning for that, I would say it maybe is, you know, somewhere around five per year that we do genetic testing on. And some of those patients also have syndromes that we know overlap with atypical HUS, such as lupus, for example. What about those patients who come in and have that sort of suspicious story? They had 
preeclampsia that persisted after a, a delivery of a baby or some renal disease that came up postpartum that was never well explained and then developed this hypertensive nephropathy, which is a story I also get called about a fair amount of the time. And the, you, you do the genetic testing, you do a gene panel that looks at all the current genes that we look at for atypical HUS and they all come back negative. We know that happens in about 50% of patients who clearly have atypical HUS. We don't find it on our genetic panel, even if we're a little bit flexible and kind of stretch a little bit with some of the VUS is the variance of unknown significance. What do you do next in those kinds of patients? Sure, great question. So if there is a clear mutation identified, then we actually have a conversation with their local nephrologist and see whether or not, even if they're on dialysis, if there's other extra renal manifestations that would warrant them being on therapy. So some of those patients, you know, would be referred to hematology, for example. It just depends on the local physician's comfort level in treating that patient. If they do not have an identified genetic mutation, then it's tricky. And what we do at our center is we note that they had the testing done and that the results, for example, could have been negative or I think even harder for the clinician is equivocal. And what we do is don't necessarily plan to treat them with ecolizumab at the time of their transplant, but rather more closely monitor them in terms of their LDH, haptoglobin, anemia, platelet count after transplant with a much lower threshold to consider, you know, recurrent atypical I2S and start therapy than in our average transplant recipients. Do you ever do any other kinds of testing? Trying to lead the witness here, obviously. But when you have these kinds of patients, and you are going to follow them closely, which is often what I end up suggesting also to people in that kind of a setting. But if you are going to just follow very closely, you want to pick it up as early as possible. Do you look at other things? Have you ever, do you ever look at soluble C5B through 9, the soluble MAC complex? Obviously not a well-established marker, but certainly coming into its own, some of the French studies and, and whatnot. Do you ever look at that sort of thing or other complement markers as a way of getting just another piece of information that might give you an earlier hint that this person was going to relapse? So we do not, and that has more to do with availability and turnaround of testing. The last time that, you know, I looked into that, um, it is more just the classic, you know, LDH, anemia, um, platelet count, that's more the trigger for us, as well as, you know, is the kidney working? Is the kidney responding the way that you think it should. And that's difficult with the deceased donor picture because, you know, DGF can happen about 15% of the time at our center. And especially with the DCD organs, you're going to see DGF even more frequently than that. But for a living donor, for example, if we were to see slow graft function even, I mean, certainly delayed graft function, we would be highly concerned about a process such as atypical HOS occurring. So it's it's more um, not necessarily that they wouldn't be useful or interesting, but more of a real-time ability to receive other results at our center. Just to toot our own horn, we can get that soluble MAC to you in 24 hours. Good. Well, that's good we, to know. Can, that's good to know. Yeah. That's why we have it. To, to get it back so that it can be used in this kind of decision-making if it's when it's needed. When you do those genetic panels, it's, I'm not sure whether you, you use our panel routinely or other panels, but do you also look for the DGKE and cobalamin C mutations, the other causes, the, the sort of non-complement mediated causes of um, of a TMA that looks like AS? 
Well, we have used your testing panel exclusively since I joined Piedmont in 2014. And from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's available on your, is it available on your reaching testing now? Absolutely. Yeah. So we include both DGKE and cobalamin C. Those are those, those are two diseases that when I was younger, like five years ago, we used to say that I, that old doctor didn't have to worry about it because those only cause problems and they cause a full syndrome of problems in pediatric patients. And now we're starting to realize like so many other things, you know, like Fanconi's anemia and even late onset sickle cell disease and late onset HLH with these other diseases, we're starting to realize that there's phenotypically milder forms and we're seeing late onset DGKE and cobalamin C, neither one of which will respond to eculizumab. They require a very different therapy, but especially in the case of cobalamin C, therapy is very effective. It's just very, it's just different than, than the eculizumab. So yeah, we, we absolutely have it on there and that's why. Very rare diseases. I was, just, I was actually looking up the incidence of DGKE and I believe it's 0.01 per million. So you know, I think of AHAS as being rare at 10 per million, but this is 0.01 per million, roughly. So very, very rare diseases, but we do see an occasional case coming through. Right. And of course, the uh, incidence is going to be greater in a transplant situation because you already had renal failure and then you have testing in people that are having some sort of clinical difficulty. So Greater conceivably, because if somebody had, for example, cobalamin C or DGKE, you could imagine that they would get treated with eculizumab because they would meet all the criteria to be atypical HUS, and then they wouldn't respond, which almost everybody does to eculizumab, but it can be passed off to we were too late or we didn't give enough or there was some other complicating feature. And then they would end up obviously coming to transplant. Um, what about the role of, trans of uh, genetics in the, the donors? That's something you do. Right. To my memory, we have never tested a donor. And that is just because we have not had anybody that we felt as a, a transplant candidate going into transplant that they had atypical HOS or strongly suspicious for it. We haven't had a living donor situation come up for them. So that's just because of, of course, we would test donors if we were concerned that the recipient either had a typical HS for sure or potentially could have it, we would pursue donor testing, but it, ha it just hasn't come up for us. Got it. So I'm just curious and to get your thoughts, and if you haven't really had to deal with the issue, maybe this is not even a fair question, but what about the positive recipient who has a definable mutation, CFI, CFH, you know, significant definable mutation, and you test the donor and they have it also, but they're a very good match. And I, I don't know whether it's what the scenario might be where, you know, the living donor is such a good match and it's so difficult finding other matches that would you ever feel pressured to use that donor despite their being positive for, for an AHUS mutation, assuming that they hadn't been, they hadn't ever had an, an episode of, of AHUS actually. Exactly. So, you know, I, my first impulse is to say no. But as a transplanter, I will also say that every living donor recipient situation is different. So if I had a young person, for example, that had never had a surgical stress, or if they were a female, had never had a pregnancy stress, and they had a mutation for factor H or I, I would just assume that they were fine because they actually hadn't had any trigger that could uncover their atypical HS. And it just hadn't, they just hadn't lived long enough for us to see it yet. 
Now the the tricky part comes up, and this comes up with any question, if it's, you know, atypical A2S risk or hypertension risk or diabetic risk, when you have older donors, say that you have donors, a donor in their mid-60s that wants to give a kidney to their spouse, for example, and they would rather give a kidney to their spouse and watch them die on dialysis, we start to accept more donor risk because they have less life to live and manifest kidney issues through that. And also the relationship of the donor and recipient, the motivation really matters. I would say that there are certain mutations, though, that I just would feel personally more uncomfortable with, like a complement factor H, for example. Um, I, I can't imagine at this time that I would necessarily feel comfortable with a donor that had a clear mutation for that. But I don't know. In the future, as we get more comfortable treating people, perhaps that will change. But that would be my approach at this time. Kind of moving along through the patient's story. So the patient goes on atilizumab. When do you start your patients on atilizumab? Or Altamiris, whatever you use. So oftentimes in the post-transplant setting, if they're already with a clinical diagnosis of atypical A2S, we tend to see people on Ultimaris rather than Solaris, just the longer acting. And and we time our living donor transplant accordingly uh, based on their last dose of Ultimaris or, or Solaris, coordinated with the hematologist that's treating them. For the deceased donor period, it gets a little tricky and we always have Solaris on hand for use in the hospital because they could get called in right when they're due and then you know that they might need an extra dose just because of the stress of surgery. So we kind of just go by when their last dose was with a lower threshold to treat them at the time of transplant if we feel like they would benefit from that. For a patient that we have a clinical suspicion of possible atypical A2S after transplant, so if the allograft is not functioning well, the thrombocytopedia is out of expected range with the undetectable haptoglobin and higher than usual LDH, we would empirically administer echolizumab while sending off genetic testing. Um, and we would continue that for a variable amount of time based on uh, the kidney biopsy and the results of the genetic testing. And oftentimes, we also try to find out what happened to the mate kidney. If it was a deceased donor transplant, we either receive that mate kidney and can follow the progress of that kidney or contact through the OPO and see if we can reach out to the other center and see how their recipient is doing. So it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. We go by a lot of different clinical parameters to decide how long we will keep a patient on echolizumab. But our threshold to start it is relatively low because in a kidney transplant, time does matter and we need the allografts to work well you know, right out of the gate, what we want in order to ensure long-term success of that transplant. Do you have an algorithm for deciding when to stop? I'm just, not that we have one in any other setting, really. I think we're just now starting to get into this. People are beginning to try to develop some approach to patients who've been on eculizumab for some period of time in the non-transplant settings. We often use six months. You know, after six months, you make a decision. Is it possible to stop them? And algorithms are beginning to percolate, but I don't know that there's really a clearly established one yet, even in that setting. Do you have some time frame you usually use and things you usually look for, or is it? Sure. So 
I would say if we were convinced that the patient had atypical H2S, we would want them to remain on eclizumab for the life of at least their transplant. So we have some patients on chronic therapy, either with Ultimaris or Solaris. For patients that we feel like may have had atypical H2S, but they had primary non-function, so their graft was still non-functional at 90 days, we would likely withdraw the eclizumab at that point just because the graft is non-functional unless they had other reasons, you know, extra-renal reasons to remain on drug, at which time we would transfer them to a hematologist. And then the trickier ones are the patients that had a pretty good clinical story for atypical H2S and are doing better on therapy, but still have some graft dysfunction at three months. And in general, what we've done is we discussed them in a patient care conference with all of the transplant team. And we oftentimes opt to continue echolizumab therapy in order to maintain the graft function that they have and hopefully continue to see improvement you know, between that three and six month period. Now you have some patients that just rapidly get better and, you know, if they had other factors that could have left, led to a TMA picture um, and they just kind of improved more quickly than you would think that they would have, then some of those patients, we actually withdraw at three months. So that's a very vague answer to your question, but a lot of it is team driven. And I think that these patients are still so rare enough that even large transplant centers like ours that do over 350 kidney transplants a year, we still don't have very many patients that end up on echolizumab within the first year out from transplant. So I'm getting way out of my field here, but my memory was a couple of years ago, there was a study out of the Netherlands, maybe, or Copenhagen, some such, where they talked about changing the transplant regimen itself using different um, immunosuppressive drugs, focusing on using live donor kidneys rather than deceased donor kidneys. And using that, they found that they were able to have better outcomes in the AHUS patients, patients with known AHUS, and were able to get most of them off their eculizumab. I can't remember now what, what the study is, Dunneveld or something like that. I'm just drawing a partial blank. You know the study I'm talking about, and is that something people I, have ever... I don't. I don't know that study. And although that sounds interesting, I would, if a person, I really felt like they had atypical H2S at this time, I would still treat them with Echolese, ma'am. I think that there's enough triggers in a transplant recipient because we have the potential of infections, such as viral infections. We have potential surgeries down the road if they came back and needed something else, post-transplant pregnancy, uh, the calcineurin inhibitors themselves. So I just feel like these are, even if you have a successful transplant and you're quote-unquote well, you're still a chronic patient with several medical issues. So I would have to look at that study, but my reflex would be to be on the safe side and to keep them on long-term echolizumab therapy. The other thing about echolizumab therapy is that, you know, when you think about the risks and benefits for somebody, obviously everybody knows that it's an expensive therapy, but I talk to our patients extensively about the meningococcal meningitis risk. We make sure that they're vaccinated. We make sure that they know immediately who to call if they have symptoms of that. But other than that, the risks to them 
of specifically that therapy are relatively low compared to the risks of all the other medications that they're taking in order to protect their transplant from rejection. That's really all the questions I had. You did bring up one thing that I've been curious about. I was wondering, yeah, I was talking to someone, a patient yesterday about the meningococcal risk. And I was telling her that when I had an active clinical practice, and now I'm more involved with the lab, but when I had an active clinical practice, I gave my cell phone to all my patients who were on eculizumab because I've had some experiences where they come in with a fever and some other minor symptoms and they don't seem that sick. They show up in the emergency room and despite having the little card that says, pay attention to me, they don't. And the ER doctor say, you just look great. I'm going to send you on home. So I told them to just call me every time they go to the emergency room. I'm just wondering whether you've had any experiences like that and what you do. Do you have somebody who's sort of the designated point man who goes in to make sure that every patient who's on eculizumab ends up you know, in the hospital if they have a fever of, of any significance? Right. So I have been our atypical A2S and eculizumab person at Piedmont. And for example, the patients that are on long-term eculizumab know how to reach me, to your point. I'm very good about email, but they all have my work email. So they contact me all the time. Have you seen my labs? My county went up. And I wouldn't be able to do that just because we transplant hundreds of patients a year with anybody else. But I do want to know what's happening with them. And I think that they need to know that they have a both on their chart and as well as another way to contact people in case they run into trouble. I think additionally, you know, and I'm sure you did this, but it's a lot of education of the caregiver as well, because what if they did have meningitis? They're not going to be probably have altered mental status and be able to notify the emergency room physician. So the spouse or whatever caregiver that they have needs to also know the risk of that. So our patients are educated on that. So is there anything that I should have asked you to talk about? Anything you haven't talked about that you've always wanted to about evaluating patients' peritransplant for atypical HUS? No, I think we covered everything. I think that the one thing that I just feel pretty strongly about as a as a mother and person that underwent pregnancy is that I feel that the one thing that is often missed is that postpartum renal failure piece. And yeah. if I could just emphasize that that should definitely be a trigger in people's mind to think about atypical HUS because for whatever reason, I still feel like in perhaps the OBGYN community or I, I don't know where the word needs to get out, but that is the one group of people that I feel like we could do a better job of diagnosing before the transplant as to why they had renal failure in the first place. That's fantastic. Thanks. So we actually, since you bring that up, we had a case we published some, some time ago. There was one of the first cases where I was really honestly in equipoise about a patient and couldn't decide if this was AHUS or not, um, but it was a, a woman who had I believe she was thought to have health syndrome or, or preeclampsia. They delivered her and she got somewhat better, but not all the way better, but well enough to go home. And then hematologically became stable and her kidney function continued to deteriorate slowly. But over the course of a month, maybe, or two months, I forget all the details. Um, and they finally called and eventually she had had a somewhat elevated LDH and her Hemoglobin had been a little bit low and her platelets had not been normal, although, you know, obviously that happens with pregnancy, but didn't get better postpartum. And then the kidneys continued to deteriorate. We got genetic studies on her and she actually had a CFH mutation. So 
fortunately, that time the genetics you know saved us. That's obviously dicey since the genetics missed about half the cases. But in that particular case, it did, and we made the diagnosis, got her treated, and she immediately got better. Um, although I think if her genetics had come back negative and we had sat there longer wondering, I'd, I do wonder now in retrospect whether we might not have lost those kidneys. To your point, maybe another one of those cases of postpartum renal failure that we just missed. I can't think of anything else to talk about either. So this has been fantastic. You know, a great and thorough review of all the issues that come up around transplant-related atypical HUS. So for those of you who are listening, if you have other questions, get back to me. I'm happy to have other podcasts about issues that are of interest to people. But otherwise, I'll see you on the next podcast for Blood, Sweat, and Smears. Thank you all very much. And again, thank you. This was really fantastic. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Macheon Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to bloodsweatandsmears at macheondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Macheon at Twitter at MacheonDX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.